When a blacksmith approaches a new piece, they have a lot to consider. The type of iron, the purity of the metal. The amount of carbon that modifies its malleability and creation. And usability as an object of wrought iron, tool grade or mild steel. The intensity of the fire's heat, manipulated by forces sometimes out of your control, stoked by the coal or wood that needs to be available at all times in order for the fire to even exist. And none of this is possible if not for a supply of iron, an element that is everywhere, but rarely in natural concentrated pockets that can be easily scooped from the earth. The hand of a shovel made of iron, moving its kin for man, so the hand of the blacksmith can keep pounding. And when the shovel stops moving, or deliberately moves the iron out of the reach of the blacksmith, what then? When a blacksmith learns that his trade's theory can be applied to a political anvil, what can he forge? Our blacksmith's name is Victor Power. In the early 1900s, he was stationed in an iron mine during the birth of the largest and most aggressive corporation the world had ever seen. Tired of abuse by this new corporation, he set down his hammer and set into motion one of the greatest legal assaults ever waged against the robber barons and gods of industry. And then he vanished from history. I'm filmmaker Carl Jacob. And I'm author and journalist Aaron Brown. By the time the world had heard of this blacksmith, he had become a lawyer. And the trail he left led us to a story you never heard before. It's part history, part mystery. A political thriller. A story that leads to family names you've heard of, like... Rockefeller, Morgan, Carnegie... Boeing, Pillsbury, Mondavi... And in some cases explains where they got their money. At times, it's conspiracy. With ties to Al Capone and the Mexican Revolution. It's a story so big, it contains the origins of the framework and philosophy of the modern corporation. It's the missing piece of how America won both world wars. This This is Power in the the Wilderness. Wilderness. Here's how I see what we're doing here. We're like a buddy cop movie. And you're the you're the wild not quite by the regs guy. Yeah, that sounds about right. Wears his badge on his tight t-shirt, right? <laughs> and and I'm the um, the guy from accounting who got who got sent to keep you in line, but I'm not really, you know, as street smart as you. Oh, but yeah. I'm uh but I attended a, a prestigious college. I do think that does sum up our relationship really well. Yeah, I think that's, I kind of feel like the, the nerd to your cool kid, but together we're something special. Oh, I don't think you ever told me that before, Aaron. Well, that's, yeah, that's, that's a sincere feeling of mine. It warms my heart. Yeah. I think our places in life resemble your assessment. You're the college instructor, and I'm the kid who moved to New York with $800 in his pocket. And somehow I'm still here. So yeah, I guess that makes sense. Though that 800 bucks is long gone. Sure is. It was gone right away. So here we are. I'm looking out the window right now. I see an elevated subway platform that we might hear in the background sometimes. We're going to be doing this from two different places. I'll be in New York City, and uh, Aaron, you're in Minnesota. I'm in Minnesota to the extreme. 
I, I live in a forest in northern Minnesota. When I look out my window, I see a pristine lake, pine trees, and deer frolicking. Near a stoplight's uh, 27 miles from where I sit, and that is just the world that I live in, which is quite a contrast from, from where you are. But we meet every week, and we've been talking for years about this story. We do, and the reason we meet every week is because I'm from kind of the same place you're from. I'm from Hibbing, Minnesota, which is going to become the epicenter for this podcast's story. I work in Hibbing. That's that's the place. It's always been the big city in my country life. It's where I get my groceries and not quite as big as it used to be, just under 20,000 people, but bigger than it was at the turn of the century, I guess, and certainly bigger uh, in terms of geography. It's annexed some land over the years. Yeah, spread across the largest city land-wise in Minnesota. Yeah, it's bigger than Minneapolis in terms of size, but obviously not population. So where is Hibbing, Minnesota? If you think of Minnesota as a weird bird with a big bill sticking uh, just over Lake Superior, Hibbing is the eye of Minnesota, right in the middle of that northern section. It's 85 miles south of Canada, about 85 to 90 miles north of Duluth. It's right on the interior of the forests as you come off the western Great Plains into Minnesota from the west. But really a forest. I mean, it, it used to be a massive forest here until all the loggers came in and cut all the trees down, which was probably the site in the early 1900s here. A bunch of stumps. Yeah, our story starts in a land of stumps and mud. Loggers had come through, the logging barons had made their millions and uh, had become wealthy titans and then mostly left. And the land was left behind and it proved to be even more valuable than they expected, uh, as we'll find out. And that's when this story starts to get really exciting. Because Victor Power the blacksmith in a very short time becomes Victor Power the lawyer, one of the most powerful and persuasive men in Minnesota in the early 1900s because of what he was able to see that no one else could. And even so, he didn't leave a legacy. It almost seems like as we've been digging, we're finding evidence that he was erased. Which makes the story even more compelling. But in our searches, each of us has found a trail to the truth. And mine starts in the hallways of an anomaly. So I grew up smack dab in the middle of Hibbing, Minnesota, a town whose existence is to serve the mining industry. And years of population decline, loss of tax dollars, loss of social diversity, makes it a challenging place to grow up. Hibbing. Historical is definitely the word for it, but I feel like in our day and age it's become a little bit dated, but I do like the history about it. These are the voices of current Hibbing locals. Bedroom community. I think it's a cute little small town that's good for raising families. Aging population governed by the local mining industry. It's pretty boring, typically. Not a lot to do. Old. <laughs> and dead. <laughs> I think I could retire here, maybe make a family here, but I don't think I'd want to be here while trying, you know, put myself up in corporate ladders. I also attended the Hibbing High School, which, even as a kid, I understood to be an architectural marvel. I graduated from the high school in 2019. It's beautiful, and I know everybody says that about it. I think the high school's beautiful. Really big, beautiful. <sighs> I mean, okay, so it's... 
very artfully made, I think, in comparison to other schools, you know. Um, the floors, I guess, are they stick with me. And then, like, the ceiling by the entrance to the auditorium, and then the auditorium looks... It doesn't look like it belongs in a school, but in a good way, so... It doesn't feel like it belongs in our town at all. The largest city on the Iron Range is a community steeped in mining tradition. Today, visitors to Hibbing will find a celebration of life all year round. Roam the spectacular halls of the Hibbing High School. Originally built in the early 1900s, Bob Dylan once studied here. When you stand in front of the original building and you look at it, originally it had many more spires on the top than it has now. So if you think about castles and where the archers would stand to shoot the arrows, it had four towers with battlements. My name is Mary Pulsich Keys, and I was born here in Hibbing. We give tours of the high school. We give tours of Hibbing. Look up at the ceiling. This is the work of Italian artisans that were brought in by the mining companies to do this beautiful work. We have marble on the walls. We have these four big marble pillars here. We're standing on the stage of the high school here. Mm -hmm. What am I looking at? You're looking at an auditorium that seats 1,800 people between the main floor and the balcony. These seats are canted. Some of them are wider, some of them are narrower. The seats are all gold. Down in front here, we have what looks like a big box covered with velvet. That's a Barton organ. There were only three of those built in America. The stage that we're standing on was built as a professional stage based on depth and width. And the two, what are known as royal boxes on either side of the auditorium. And the large chandeliers weigh about 600 pounds. They hang 65 feet from its lowest crystal down to the floor. The brass came from a factory in Belgium. The crystal came from a crystal factory in Czechoslovakia that was bombed by the Nazis during the Second World War and never rebuilt. So these are truly irreplaceable. All of this beautiful workmanship is original. Word of the opulence of it gets out east. And the New York Times sends a reporter to find out, could there possibly be a school like we're hearing about? Whoa, 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 wait, hold up. So the New York Times wrote an article about the school when it was built? Okay, New York Times. I have a subscription, which gives me access to the archives. And the reporter comes here, here? visits, and he goes back to New York City, and he writes his article. Mining Town High School. And his headline reads, Here it is. I have seen a castle in the wilderness. This is the actual headline. Mining Town High School splendid as a cathedral. Hibbing, Minnesota spends more than $4 million for a building to teach 1,100 children. A white elephant in the land of Buffalo. It was a castle in the wilderness, but it was not a castle in that just an aristocratic family is going to live there. It was everybody's home. And this building, in many ways, was a community center and still is a community center. The fact that the New York Times sent someone out to cover Hibbing at all. Yeah, it's, it's amazing that the town of this size was getting that kind of attention. But Hibbing was getting it because it was earning the media. It was truly something interesting happening in this very remote, it was still remote, part of the world. So I started with a simple question. Where did the high school come from? And I thought, 
If we ask enough people around town, surely we'll be able to find a concrete answer. I have no idea. I don't even know, like, the origins of it. I know it's kind of old, so I'm pretty sure it was just built because, you know, Hibbing was founded on mining, so people need to be trained, you know, they need their kids to be trained, so... If I remember correctly, it was built by the mine companies when they moved Hibbing, or it was funded by the mine companies and built for the town, I believe. Okay. Yeah. It was built by the mines after they bought the North Hibbing area of town and had to start tearing down Jefferson High School, so they built us the new, very, very expensive Hibbing High School. It was built by miners when they had money, when it was really... They basically how built do you th- a, How do you think that worked? I have no idea. That's just what we were told as children. That's like the grand story. Local mining companies with a gun to their head. I don't want to know. <laughs> I feel like another thing that's going to get me assassinated. This town owes money, and I can't pay it. <laughs> Turns out the answer to this question is harder to find than I thought. So I started to dig. My first stop was the high school library where they maintain the school board minutes from the inception of the school board, including the years between 1917 and 1923 that they decided to build and then built the high school. And though there are a lot of fascinating numbers, like the initial price tags, quotes from different builders, and what they projected the school would cost, there was no discussion about where the money was coming from. It was almost as if they weren't allowed to talk about it. There was also no talk about why... At that moment, they had decided to quickly break ground on what would become 44 classrooms, two chemistry rooms, two physics rooms, two drafting rooms, two art rooms, one two woodworking rooms, laboratory two cooking one rooms, two bookkeeping rooms, room, three lecture rooms, three sewing room, rooms, one, one biology room, room, one biology room, one, geology room, one essaying room, shop, one junior one college study hall, one, high school, one study automotive hall, shop, one forge shop, one machine shop, one foundry, one swimming tank, 15 offices. There's another anomaly in downtown Hibbing that always confused me as a kid as well, called the Android Hotel and Crystal Ballroom. It was an abandoned building, though there still remained a hand-painted advertisement on the brick exterior wall depicting this crazy, beautiful, roaring 20s scene, and it just couldn't put it all together. And nobody ever told stories about them. Yeah, you grow up here and you don't know how these things got here. And you only get this unspoken sense that this place is not like other places. That's that's why I got interested in politics. You know, this place is working class, maybe kind of conservative in terms of lifestyle, but radical, just wild and out there. You know, I'm from Cherry. Cherry is this little hayfield right outside of Hibbing. The most famous person from Cherry is Gus Hall, the noted communist leader, 20th century communist presidential candidate. We're the home of Prohibition. Andrew Volstead was a Minnesota congressman who wrote the Volstead Act, which created Prohibition. We're one of the most progressive education traditions in the country for public education. And at one time in the 90s, we were represented by two senators, Paul Wellstone, one of the most liberal in the country, the only one to vote against the first Iraq war, and Rod Grams, a right-wing conservative radio host who was one of the most conservative senators in the country, our governor at that time was Jesse Ventura, a retired professional wrestler. And all were elected within a four-year period. 
And we also don't have a Democratic Party. We have our own party called the DFL. Yeah, the the Democratic uh, Party merged with a very popular third party, the Farmer Labor Party, which uh, during the 1930s and 40s was the most dominant party in Minnesota politics. It ran the state. And the roots of that party can arguably be traced back to the time period that we're talking about, which is between 1900 and 1920, the first 20 years of the last century. 1918 was the Nonpartisan League, the forerunner of the Farmer Labor Party, and our guy, our blacksmith, had his fingers in that. This seems like a good segue to explain how you found this story, Aaron. At about the same time, there was something in the ether that were bringing us both to this story, but your path started at a political rally of sorts. It was uh, 2016 and near the end of the year, and it's a 100-year anniversary of one of the major labor strikes in this region, the Industrial Workers of the World Strike of 1916. And so 100 years later, they're having an exhibit about it at the Minnesota Discovery Center. And this was right after the election of Donald Trump, too, right? This is, yeah, days, uh, just, I think, two or three days after Donald Trump was elected president. And I had a lot of things on my mind attending this lecture because it was the first time in my life that this area had voted for a Republican, in this case, Donald Trump. And... It was a stark contrast from the politics that brought about the strike itself 100 years ago and the labor-driven politics that really dominated the area for the century that followed. I mean, early on after the strike, the it was a Republican area. The mines had a lot of power. But after World War II, really, the you know Democratic Farmer Labor Party was the strong organizing force. The United Steelworkers was a very powerful union that really brought about a lot of, you could say, positive change to the economic status of people who lived in this area. And a lot of the public works and things that we enjoy came from this kind of politics. Well, this was all kind of falling apart. People held very different views now, descendants of the very people who participated in the strike in some cases. And so this is the environment where I'm sitting at this lecture, and one of the entertainment elements was uh, they were going to sing the Internationale, the workers' anthem of the socialist movement, popular among socialists the world over for many years. And these two older folks, a man and a woman, I think it was a husband and a wife, were on this old kind of out-of-tune piano, kind of like a... (laughs) Kind of like a brothel piano, I imagine. It's like a plinky little piano. And um, they're pl- they're plinking out the song. Uh, one of them's on guitar, and they're singing this song. And they sing it in English and in Finnish. <laughs> and I'm listening, and, and a lot, of, lot, but not many, but... but a few of the prominent people in the in the audience knew the words and were singing along and there was just this the sound of this song which i had heard before but i'd never really paid really close attention to this song um the fact that this song was being sung by older people in a world that had completely changed kind of it was driving me nuts how did how did we get here um how how did this song um you know that was a young a young person's song, 
the young socialist movement of the early, this is before the Russian Revolution even when this was happening. How did this get to be a song that old people sing while young people vote for Donald Trump? And and that was a confusing question for me. And it led me, you know, back in time. I, I wanted to go back uh, in time to see what was going on. You're listening to Power in the Wilderness on KAXE, KBXE, Northern Community Radio. Information about the show, the podcast, and how to support the project can be found at powerinthewilderness.com. Hello? Aaron. Yeah. Carl Jacob calling. Hey, Carl. How you doing? Uh, um, I'm doing pretty good. How you doing? <laughs> Good, as you were, we're pen pals now. Uh, yeah, pretty interesting, <laughs> pretty interesting coincidence we got going on. It is. It's cool. I mean, there must be something in the ether, right? We're both sort of working on this. Well, it's same a story thing that's a hundred yeah. years old. <laughs> you know, it's been on my radar a while because I've been writing and hibbing and you know, writing the paper for a while and all that, and, and so like this stuff is like always on the periphery, and I've always kind of collected a few notes on, but kind of left it be and then I start to realize like nobody nobody went in and and connected all these dots and it's it's just sitting out there and it seems to have touched everything in town i just i know i can't get past it it's you know this guy's a ghost and he's just in everything yeah ghost is a good word for it because i don't know you know what your experience has been but every time i'm trying to like dig a little bit deeper and find a little more information about it. And it, it's been really difficult. I mean, I can't find any sort of comprehensive yeah. telling of him. It's just, I was able to get down to the library in St. Paul yeah. and they've got his, what they call journals there, but yeah. they seem more like professional scrapbooks more than anything else. Yeah, I haven't been down there yet. So, you know, I know I mentioned briefly, but that my intention is to turn this into some kind of series. Right, like I want to develop a TV show, and I'm guessing that's not what you're doing. No, I'm writing a book. Uh, I'm writing a, a nonfiction, uh, ideally some kind of comprehensive history of of Vic Power and the era around him. So I don't think we're yeah. going to be in each other's hair as, in terms of our projects. I, yeah. I think we could probably help each other, yeah. Uh, well, I'm just going to just suggest that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a <laughs> I good mean, idea. I mean, it's um, probably going to take a while, <laughs> I'm guessing. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a struggle to get enough time. So I, I, I'd I, like to keep talking because um, I, I I need help. And I think uh, I think we could be good for each other if we uh, share some of what we've got. I, I know I've got some stuff I think you're going to find pretty interesting. So what we just listened to was four years ago. Yeah. Almost to the day. Right. Yeah. It's 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 shocking how long ago that was. 
when you think about where we've been since. Yeah, and it's just an indicator of how long it's taken us, by no fault of our own really, to find this buried story. Yeah, it, it's it's a tremendous amount of work. And yeah, we're both busy people with other lives, but boy, have we had to dig in and find some things. And and I'm just thinking, I was trying to calculate in my head how many newspapers, not modern current newspapers, but how many newspapers from 100 plus years ago I've read since that phone conversation. And it's certainly in the thousands and, and frankly needs to be in the tens of thousands before I'll feel done learning about that time. It's it's amazing how much information and how many names. I almost feel like some of the names in this story are like people who live now because I've read so much about it. Which, admittedly, you've been doing a lot more of than I have lately. Yeah, well, you you have been helping organize a lot of things while I've been supplying raw material. You're you're like the... You're like the Oliver Mining Company, Carl, and I'm the poor immigrant <laughs> worker breaking my back to provide your needs. No, I'm kidding, of course, but... Uh, Let's talk about the Oliver Mining Company. What was the Oliver Mining Company? Yeah, known locally as the Oliver. The Oliver. The Oliver. I didn't know that. And that's usually how the locals would have referred to it. It's the wing of U.S. Steel, the world's largest corporation at the dawn of the 20th century, and it's their ore operations. It collects the iron ore that feeds the largest steel corporation in the world. And locally, the company can make decisions that affect everybody who lives there. Or, on a national scale, U.S. Steel could make a decision that would trickle down and radically affect the lives of all the people living in Hibbing at the time. Right. And yeah, their local officials make local decisions, but at any time... Albert Gary up there at the U.S. Steel headquarters could issue an order and it would reach down to a hole in the ground in Hibbing, Minnesota. And who's Albert Gary? So there's this guy, Judge Albert Gary. He was a judge as a younger man, and that's why, and he kept the title his whole life. Called himself Judge Gary, even though he was a capitalist. It was not a judge anymore. And he, but he loved the title, so everyone called him Judge Gary. And he is the CEO of, of U.S. Steel. J.P. Morgan's money made U.S. Steel. He's the one who, through his investment banking and through his other investors, uh, bought out Andrew Carnegie and, and John Rockefeller and made each of them the number one and two richest men in the world when he was done. And he, he his oomph made the corporation, but Gary was the, the general. So wait, wait, hold on for yeah. a second here. You're telling me that Carnegie and Rockefeller became two of the richest men in the world because of the formation of U.S. Steel, something that could not have existed at the size it did without the land in Minnesota. Correct. Yeah, U.S. Steel relies on the ore from northern Minnesota and Michigan, but 85% of it at this time came from northern Minnesota, the Mesabi and Vermilion Iron Ranges. So that red Minnesota earth made them wealthy. Correct. Yeah, the the ground beneath the feet of early Mesabi Iron Rangers is what made those men whose names you've heard before what they were. It made them rich. Richer than they already were, which they were. Of course, John Rockefeller was an oil man. Carnegie was a steel man and had, well, they were already rich dudes, but they got super rich. The the idea of a super wealthy billionaire was a concept that was created by the formation of U.S. Steel, and it was built on the back of what you find in the ground outside Hibbing. Right. So the published numbers 
for what Rockefeller made in that transaction was $90.1 million in 1901, which, adjusted for inflation today, is $2,800,000,000 that he made in a single day. The year is 1902. This man named Walter Power becomes the mayor of the town of Hibbing. He is considered to be one of the early pioneers of Hibbing. And for our purposes, let's say he's the head merchant. He owns an entire city block in Hibbing. He starts one of the first banks called Merchants and Miners. Has many tenants, one of whom is his wife, Dottie, who we will learn a lot about, and she has a department store. Walter has a little brother who recently came to stay with him by the name of Victor Power. Vic is coming off of a life-threatening illness back in Michigan. He has defied his family in working in blue-collar trades. He was shoveling iron ore on the docks at Escanaba, Michigan. Now he's come to get away from his family back in Michigan, and now he's joined his oldest brother, the pioneer not just of Hibbing, but of, of the Power family, breaking away from their staid existence. And Walter is kind of a hero, but also kind of a father figure in some ways. And Vic right away goes to work in the mines. He, he actually becomes a blacksmith's assistant working in the forge for what would become a mine that would join the Oliver Mining Company. And he comes home dressed, uh, dressed in sooty, dirty clothes every day and has to scrub that stuff off his fingernails. To his older brother Walter's presumably very nice merchant home. <laughs> right. And and he's a he's a Walter is one of the prominent men in town and Victor is choosing to work in a lower class, upper upper working class. Blacksmiths were a, a cut above the men they sent to die in the underground mine. You know, they got paid 50 cents extra to clean out the flue once a week and it was a terrible job. It was terrible and and he was a, a round man who had to fit into small spaces, which was a challenge. <laughs> he was a very round man, it's true. So Vic is at the age of about 21 at this time. And we should also let it be known that both Victor's brother Walter, who is currently the single-term mayor, and his father are lawyers. So a few years go by. Vic is shunning the family trade of being a lawyer. He's working as a blacksmith. He's comfortable at his job. And then something happens. What was it that happened? So Mayor Walter Power, along with the merchants of town, remember Walter is the one of the lead merchants in, in Hibbing, and they're tired of dirty, muddy roads. They want to become a modern city, and they want to pave their roads. This is something that's happening all over the country. Pavement is fairly new, but it's, it's what all the sophisticated towns are doing. And they want to lay down 
pavement inhibiting on the streets. They have to pass the resolution out of the city council. But at every meeting, there are several representatives of the Oliver Mining Company to argue against it, to argue that it's too expensive, to argue that doing so would prevent the mine from bringing their equipment from the railroad depot through the streets of Hibbing to the mine itself. And that would be a devastating blow. And they argue that it's too expensive to build a different way to get the equipment in. So they argue, argue, argue against paving the streets, despite the obvious benefits to the people who live in Hibbing. The arguments don't land with Walter's committee. They pass the resolution anyway. So what does Oliver do? They send for an injunction out of Duluth from a judge in Duluth, preventing the city from paving the the streets of Hibbing because of the damage implied to the company. Injunction comes back, paving can't happen. Nope, they are legally barred from paving the, the streets. And then they're held up in court for weeks at a time. And even if the injunction is dismissed or lifted, the council then has to come back and reorient itself and try again. And the mines again block them with another injunction. This happened several times during Walter Power's term as president of the village. And they're getting tired of it. They're getting stymied by, not by the will of the people who elected them, but by this one company who's using the law to block this popular program of paving that they want to do. And Walter Power comes up with an idea. He and his friends are going to pave the streets of Hibbing, whether the mines like it or not. (laughs) And legally. And legally. They're going to do it (laughs) legally because they're going to hold a legal meeting of the Hibbing Village Council at 11 p.m. one night. And outside the doors of City Hall, they've got the equipment, you know, shovels warming up, and they've got everything ready to go. And the council passes a resolution in, in the face of, you can just imagine 11 at night, these mining company representatives come in to try to stop it. And realizing what they're doing when they see the equipment outside City Hall, they come in and like, what are you doing? Like, we're going to pave the roads. No, you're not. But it's 11 at night. And there are no judges in, in Duluth that are awake at that hour. There's <laughs> nothing they can do about it. They have to get word on a train, which doesn't leave till the following morning, down to Duluth to get the injunction. So in the still of the night, they start digging up the dirt streets and mud streets of Hibbing. They're going to pave these streets right now. And uh, by the time the injunction request gets down to Duluth and comes back the next afternoon, they've totally destroyed the dirt streets of Hibbing. There is no turning back. There's nothing to injunct. Injunction at this point would prevent anybody from doing anything in the city of Hibbing. And and so therefore, there is no legal argument that they can make to stop it. And that is how the streets of Hibbing were paved, first city in northern Minnesota, to have pavement north of Duluth anyway, and only 10 years after the first paved streets in America. So it's actually very cutting edge that they did this, and the way that they did it was remarkable. And they had to do it that way, Mm -hmm. because the mines was so afraid of this little mining town becoming a place that had the power to have its own thought about how to spend its money and how to tax the mines in order to do things like pave the roads, that they felt this was a tipping point. And it terrified them. They knew that they had billions of dollars worth of ore in the village limits of Hibbing. 
and that if this ore was taxed at even a modest amount, they would lose many millions of dollars and maybe even billions over time. They were afraid of what an independent village could do with that information, and that's why they drew the line at pavement on Pine Street. This act was equivalent of the first stone thrown against the mega corporation U.S. Steel. And because of that, they reacted very harshly. And a concerted effort is made at the next village town meeting in March of 1903. In the next election, mayors are elected annually in Hibbing at this time. They do everything that they can to get Walter Power out of office and his entire administration out of office, and they succeed in unseating him. Walter Power himself and his allies are all defeated in their bid for re-election, and people who aren't necessarily arch enemies, but who are decidedly more friendly to the mining companies are all elected in their place. And the pavement program stops exactly where it is. The main streets of Hibbing are paved, but the others will not be paved, and, and that is the end of that. Walter Power says later in life in an interview that he doesn't buy into the argument that the mines are worried about transporting their equipment. He believes that if they start paving streets, the mines think that they might actually tax them and actually build a city instead of a mining camp. And that is right around the time at the end of 1902 that Victor Power decides, you know what, there is a real need uh, for a legal warrior (laughs) on the range to help people like my brother to help do things for places like Hibbing. And law isn't just some dusty old thing like my old man does, but law is something that can actually help people. And that's, I think, what Victor Power is most interested in. So he leaves. He leaves. He goes to Chicago. Believe it or not, I never have found any evidence that he graduated from the law school. Uh, <laughs> but at the time, that wasn't as important as passing the bar, which he does in 1903. He then goes to Minnesota and in 1904 passes the bar there. That's right. So he's a barred attorney in, in, in Illinois and Minnesota, and he comes right back directly to Hibbing to... Um, join his brother, the lawyer, in his law practice and becomes a partner. It's clear that during this time, Victor Power is learning and observing the political condition just as much as the legal condition. And it seems that his colleagues at the new law firm are not really interested in taking every case that comes through. His brother's focusing a lot on commercial law. And Vic decides to start taking on some unusual cases that his partners don't want to touch. Fast forward a few years. It's 1910. Someone has been put in jail for a murder. The man needs a lawyer, so they go and talk. In 1910, in Hibbing, a village quadrupled in size quickly in the 10 years previous. And it swells even bigger in the weekend because all of these miners who work in these locations, these little mining company controlled villages outside of Hibbing, camps really, with permanent structures, they come into town to partake in one of 70 plus bars. Each bar caters to a different kind of customer, often doing business in different languages, each of them 
kind of a home to a group of miners. Some of these are upstanding locally owned saloons. Some of them have girls in the back and uh, things that are maybe morally questionable happening. Whatever your flavor of nightlife, there's something for you at this time in Hibbing. Meantime, the merchants are building what they hope will become a cosmopolitan village. It's just like a Western. If you see these Westerns where the towns start to settle down and people stop carrying six shooters around, you hope. The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance is a good example of a movie. And and that's what this is, is like. It's also approaching the Roaring Twenties. That's right. So you have this mining town that feels like a Western in the middle of nowhere. But you also have these merchants who are well-dressed. They are wearing styles of the 20s. There's a lot of traditional music happening from the immigrants, but then also popular music that is starting to sound like the 20s. Buildings are starting to have electricity, which is a new development. So it's kind of this confusing juxtaposition of stuff that we've seen independently, but never together living on top of one another. Plus, add in, about 50% of the town is foreign-born immigrants, speaking one of dozens of different languages with several different religious traditions and several different political traditions, all all here at this one time and in a, in a place that's hard to get to. So it's not like you're going to run away to another town uh, far away. You're, you're in the woods in this little place, and it's wild. And the miners are poor people who came to America to escape wars and to escape early death because of the terrible conditions of their home countries. And they've come to America to seek a better life. And yes, they're alive. They're living. They're making a wage. But it's not, it's not a pretty life for these people. A lot of people still have mud floors. They live in crappy little tar paper shacks. So two of these guys, their names are Pete and Sam. Those are their actual names. (laughs) Americanized, but they would be known in America as Pete and Sam. Exactly. Pete and Sam, they came from Montenegro. They're bunkmates. They, They lived together. They're bunkmates. And they worked in, and lived in Latonia, and then they would walk into Hibbing for their nightlife once a week. And they would walk together. They were pals. Just like two people far from home, if you meet someone who speaks your language and knows where your hometown is, you're going to be friends with that person. That's what these guys were. And it's one of these guys that Vic visits in jail one night in 1910 to come to his defense. What got him there was fascinating. And what gets him out is even more fascinating. So uh, Sam was put on trial for murder, um, and Vic Power came up with the um, very logical defense that it was self-defense. He had to shoot him. This is our friend Erica. I am the curator here at the Hibbing Historical Society. So the duel is a unique piece of Hibbing history. Um, They had some sort of disagreement while they were working. Pete and Sam decide, screw this. It wasn't worth coming to America to live this life 
and they were older. They were not like 18, 19 years old. They were approaching the, you know, their late twenties. Sam says, I have an estate back in Montenegro, but I don't have enough money saved up to get myself back home. Pete says, well, I have enough money saved up, but I don't have anywhere to go. So what do they do? They have this idea. Sam Kasich himself actually uh, recounted this to C.E. Everett, who was one of the patrolmen. And after work, they decided to uh, do a gentleman's duel. We have the actual um, written record of this. They went together to Cohen's Hardware, which was in North Hibbing. They purchased two revolvers. The shop owner said they seemed like they were in good spirits. And they bought a pound of grapes while they were at the hardware store and and shared those together. Walked around the store, looked at some other stuff, had the grips changed on the revolvers, and then went on their their merry way down the street. (laughs) They walked down... 3rd Avenue and Pine Street, stopped for several drinks at the saloons along the way, and when they got to uh, the edge of town, they, they had their duel. Sam killed Pete, Uh, He was also shot. He was shot in the shoulder, um, and Pete Radovich was shot through the face and and died instantly. Shots were heard by someone on the railroad who came running, and uh, Sam, his recount is that he knelt down and and kissed, you know, Pete on the head and and, and said a prayer for him. Um, And then he went back to the closest bar and told the saloon keeper to call the police. But no one was, was actually there for the, um, for the duel itself. Um, and he was so injured that they didn't um, actually do the trial right away. He was brought into the courthouse, and the judge said, you know, we're going to postpone this because this man needs to go back to the hospital. Um, and so, he, you know, he was, he was very, very injured as well. The image of them standing at the edge of town, you know, guns drawn after they just walked, you know, dozens of blocks with each other, had some beers, um, you know, bought the guns together, eaten the grapes, as we've talked about. Um, How do you actually then go, you know, you're standing there. What makes you go through with it? You know, what says, okay, yeah, now I'm going to shoot this guy. You know, I just, that picture of them standing there and like what must have felt like hours um, before they, before they shot. One of the theories we're working with is what if, what if they decided they wanted to go home Mm -hmm. and they had some land back home, but not the means to get there. Okay. And what if um, this this agreement was in fact a way for one of them to get home? To get home. Yeah, and that's it's very that's very a very um, likely possibility. You can imagine that um, he's probably, especially as he sobers up, wakes up in jail the next morning and knows what he's done. Uh, boy, he expresses a lot of regret in the days that follow. 
uh, the newspaper talks about how he wishes he was dead. He wishes his friend had shot him instead. And that is um, where he's at when he meets Victor Power. He takes the cases of all the poor people in town who don't have as much money, who are probably going to be convicted. And at this time, this young attorney, now married, settled in Hibbing, is developing kind of a reputation for just an amazing quality in the courtroom. He is a jury whisperer. He is one of the most persuasive people in the community. And he takes on the case of Sam Kasich and uh, is going to represent him in a jury trial. Savick meets with Sam. He says, Sam, what happened? Sam tells him the story. The story of these two guys who are down. They don't like their lives. They came here expecting something different and they want to get out. They even made a written document detailing what would happen with each other's assets if one of them dies. And Vic believes him and is going to make sure that the intention of this duel is seen through. I mean, at minimum, this is manslaughter. And the charge at the time was murder, premeditated murder, which it was premeditated if you think about it. Victor Power gets in front of that jury. And at this point, Sam Kasich is generating a lot of sympathy, more sympathy than a accused murderer would, because he has shown remorse. Vic presents this case to the jury. He presents the stories of the men, the men who are in this situation that they don't want to be in, that many of the jury members are probably also in. He pulls at the heartstrings of the jury members and presents a case so persuasive that the jury unanimously decides that not only will Sam not go to jail, but he is allowed to take the assets of his dead friend Pete and go back to Montenegro. And the the official terminology is self-defense. So there's a bit of whimsy in there as well, because of course it was self-defense. It was a duel. What are you supposed to do? Not shoot the gun? <laughs> you know, and, and so it's these two things that really demonstrate what Victor Power is about for the rest of his political career. He combines this really deep empathy for working people and for regular people that he worked with, unlike his siblings, unlike a lot of lawyers, he actually spent time in the mines, time in blue collar work, and he knows these people. And so he can, he can make a very persuasive emotional argument about their, their, their plight. But then he has this wink, wink, whimsy and guile that is like, you know, it's actually, guys, it's actually self-defense if you think about it. So not only do you feel bad for the miner, who is like a lot of miners in town struggling, but then you hear this, oh, Vic, Vic, you're saying self-defense? It's that combination of humor and mirth and then dead serious emotion. And he combines these two elements in a way that nobody else does. And at a time when people are hungry for some empathy, because everybody's suffering and hurting and working and striving, and it's a hard place to live, Victor Power is, his words are a warm embrace for all kinds of different people. And juries just eat it up, no matter their class or background. He wins these, he not only wins this case, but there are so many cases, impossible cases, you would think, that Victor Power wins during these years when he's a young attorney in the city of Hibbing. So different than his brother, who is working on a lot of real estate law and commercial law. Different than other lawyers who might see these characters as 
the dregs of society who need a defense only because the Constitution requires it. Victor didn't see it that way. I do believe Vic saw them as human. Yeah. He did care about the people of Hibbing, and he also saw something that I don't think a lot of people at the time were thinking about, which is that the ore leaving on these train cars out of Hibbing was a temporary resource. It was non-renewable. And he also saw that the mines were making a lot of money off it, and that very little of that money was getting into the community, getting to people who lived there and did the work. And he very much decided in this moment that he was going to work toward helping these people survive whatever came next when the mines stopped pulling ore out of the ground. He saw education as a way to do that. He saw better quality of life for these miners who were working in the tar paper shacks like Sam and Pete were. He just saw that there was more for the people that could be done than was being done. Yeah, this reminds me of the last couple of sentences of that New York Times article about the high school that we referenced earlier. Yeah. What's it say? Uh, This article was written 11 years after Vic Power had his idea of the future of Hibbing. Here's the quote. A more important point than those mentioned comes to the mind of any outsider who has studied the figures of production of the mines. In 1923, the hull rust shipped about 12 million tons of ore. According to estimates, there are still 90 million tons available in the mine. Ten years at the rate of shipment of the last year will see the mine cleared. Other mines in the district will also be tapped down to the bottom. What will happen then? And Victor Power knew that day was coming. And he knew that there was one chance, right now, to keep some of the money in Hibbing. Power in the Wilderness is produced by Aaron Brown and Carl Jacob. And edited by Carl Jacob. This program is a production of KAXE, KBXE, Northern Community Radio in Northern Minnesota. Special thanks to Sarah Bignall, Maggie Montgomery, Heidi Holton, and Penny Holcomb for production support. Additional research by Tucker Nelson. Tucker, thank you. So much research. We'd like to thank the contributors to this episode, including the citizens of Hibbing who offered their voices to the show. Special thanks to Sam Miltich for contributing music from his album, Peasants with Torches. Thanks also to our Hibbing High School tour guide, Mary Pulsich Keys, and Erica Zupich from the Hibbing Historical Society. This program is made possible by Minnesota sales tax revenue through a grant from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. If you like what you hear and you want to give us additional support, please go to powerinthewilderness.com and find out how you can give us a one-time or reoccurring donation. I'm Carl Jacob. I'm Aaron Brown. And we'll see you guys in episode two of Power in the Wilderness. It's
love here and get me some money too. If you had prepared twenty years ago, you wouldn't have been drifting from door to door. Why don't you do show the world how to smile I could be glad all of the while I could change the gray skies to blue if I had you I could leave my old friends behind leave all my pals I wouldn't mind I could start my life all anew if I had you I could climb the snow-capped mountain Sail the mighty ocean wide I could cross the burning desert If I had you by my side I could be a king, dear, uncrowned Humble or poor, rich or renowned there is nothing I couldn't do if I had you. I've dreamed all my dreams and schemed all my schemes, but somehow it just seemed wrong mm -hmm. until I met you. Twas then, dear, I knew 